You're listening to Zero to IPO, and this is the final episode of Season 2. I'm Joshua Davis, the co-founder of Epic Magazine. And I'm Frederick Harris, Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Octo. As you know, we're dealing with a global pandemic, and we're excited to bring you more episodes of Zero to IPO, but we had to figure out how to record in isolation. So if it sounds like we're all in different rooms, it's because we are. This episode was recorded in May while we were all sheltering in place for COVID-19. Now we can get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Zero to IPO. We're absolutely thrilled to have two amazing guests on the show today. I want to first introduce Beth Comstock, who for many years, in fact, almost three decades, was at GE and served as the vice chairperson there, is on the board of Nike, is also the author of this amazing book called Imagine It Forward, which I am really enjoying and learning a lot from and and have a bunch of questions to ask Beth about. But Beth, welcome on the show. Thanks, Josh. Great to see you and great to be here. And our other guest is Jasmine Crow, who is the CEO and founder of Gooder, which is a company that I am fascinated by. I think it's one of the more insightful companies that I've come across recently. I also have a lot of questions for you, Jasmine, about how the idea came to you, but but welcome on the show. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm happy to be here. And of course, we've got Freddie Carest, my co-host on Zero to IPO. Good morning, Josh. How are you doing? Good. Hi, Beth and Jasmine. Nice to see you. Thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm super excited about today. Yeah, me too. Good to see you. Well, let's dive right in because we have a lot to talk about. Jasmine, I want to start with you and I want to understand, I want our audience to understand where you were coming from when you started Gooder. There's some kind of basic facts that I want our audience to understand. Domestically, we are wasting 72 billion pounds of food every year while 42 million people are struggling with food insecurity. Absolutely. That's a foundational mess. And, w- and it's even worse now uh, with everything that's happening with coronavirus. We're wasting more food and more people are going hungry. So it is a, a huge issue. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, before this even started, I read somewhere that uh, we were wasting about a quarter trillion dollars a year on food in the United States that people never ate. Is that right? Yeah, right, Frederick. And so just, I guess, to put in even more simpler context, about 2% of GDP is on wasted food. So that's a lot of money spent on food that never gets eaten in this country. That is crazy. Yeah. Like many people, I have some passing familiarity with this. I read about it. I don't even know where to start. And it seems like maybe you go out and you, you know, you try to donate food as best you can. And and I think that's maybe where you started. Yeah. And it transformed into something quite extraordinary. So, yeah, you know, Josh, I started feeding people that were experiencing hunger and homelessness in 2013 out of my apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, So that's where it got started. I found a parking lot. I drove past it one day. And I just saw hundreds of people that were homeless and and something kind of just, I guess, pulled on my heartstrings at that moment. And I said, I want to help. You know, what can I do? I didn't have a ton of money and I knew I could cook. And so I just went home. I posted on Facebook. Uh, Next Sunday, I'm going to go downtown and I'm going to feed on the streets if you want to join me. I had about 20 volunteers. I made a spaghetti dinner. 
Um, and people loved it. You know, I brought out my little Beats pill at the time, which wasn't that loud outside. I later <laughs> yeah, you're, you're dating us. You're dating us. We yeah. know exactly when your story occurred. This is exactly <laughs> when it happened. So it really wasn't that loud of a music thing. Um, but I had that. And, you know, the idea was it would be old school kind of Sunday music like Jackson 5 and Aretha Franklin, James nice. Brown, like this classic kind of music and a good Sunday dinner. And that's how it all got started. And so a video from one of my pop-up restaurants went viral on Facebook and people were saying, this is so amazing. You know, which restaurants donate the food? And the reality was nobody. I was couponing. I'm price matching. I always say I'm the reason Walmart doesn't price match anymore. I definitely feel like I gave them a run for their money. <laughs> and then I was cooking everything, taking it downtown, serving it, coming home, cleaning up. And so it would take me like 40 hours every week I did this. And I started researching food waste and was really like upset. Like, I can't believe this much food goes to waste. And here I am, you know, putting together $5 donations and my own money and trying to make these feedings happen to feed 500 people. And again, Jasmine, this is not at this point, this is not a business at all. Like, this is just no, your personal not at life. All. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is just this is just <laughs> Jasmine doing good. <laughs> yeah. So then where did it go from there? What's so fascinating to me about what you have built is that you took a, a kind of a, a personal mission and then there was a business insight along the way such that you have now built up an entire company around it. It's, it's valued, uh, as I understand it, at nearly $10 million now. You have 10 employees. So something transitioned for you between that personal mission to a broader mission. Exactly. So I think I was really fascinated, Josh, with the emergence of food delivery apps at the time. And so I was getting those referral codes, if you will, from my friends. Try DoorDash, try Uber Eats, try Postmates, get $10 off your first meal. And I started thinking like, wow, there needs to be something like this for restaurants to get their excess food to people in eat. Like if they had an app where they could say, I have extra XYZ, now someone goes and picks it up like we would go to Uber's, like an Uber Eats driver would go to a restaurant and pick up food and deliver it to a person. Now we pick up food and deliver it to nonprofits. So that was kind of like the first tinkering of the idea. And I found out that one of my friends, you know, someone I went to college with, well-educated, you know, worked in the film industry and just was kind of in between jobs, was actually struggling with hunger. At the time, she was pregnant uh, with her second child and, you know, had no food in her refrigerator. And that really, to me, was, I think, that that impetus, the pivotal point where it's like, you know what? It doesn't matter if no one else gets it. You see hunger way differently than most people do, you know, and you've got to go out and, and try and build this app. And I entered into a hackathon uh, that Google for Startups was putting on. It was held at Georgia Tech. And I went in there as a team of one. I'm in this design thinking session and I'm drawing out the little, you know, screens of what this app would look like, who would be my customers and doing all this customer discovery and everything by myself. And that's really what got the, the app started. And I notice now that on the Gooder website, there is a photo of a Gooder car pulling up to a Delta Airlines airplane. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've now evolved it to such an extent where you have been able to take on food from very large companies. Can you talk about that? Like, how did Delta happen? 
So we got a contract with the Atlanta airport. And so they were doing kind of a call for new innovation, a way for new businesses, smaller businesses to actually win contracts with the airport. And so there was a sustainability focus and Delta was a partner. Delta was a sponsor as well as the airport they were putting it on. It was called ATL Thinks. And I just pitched in front of them and said, hey, this is the world's busiest airport. You've got over 115 restaurants. At the end of every day, they're wasting food. This food could be going to people in the community. And the Atlanta airport sits in College Park, Georgia, uh, which happens to have about 65% of the children living in poverty. So I, I really said there's you know, no reason for any food from this airport to go to waste when there are all these children and families right around your airport that are going hungry. And I think that really made a lot of sense to them. And, and they they were willing to listen to what I had to say and took the idea. That sounds like a pretty compelling story right there, I right? Mean, that's how it happened, yeah. Yeah, but Freddie, there's one other thing here that is really pivotal to Jasmine's insight, which is that it's a triple win. The people who have food insecurity are getting fed, the food isn't going to waste and the businesses that are donating the food get the t charitable contribution, get the tax write-off, so they're making money from it. Exactly. I want to bring Beth into the conversation here because I was very excited to have Beth's insight on this particular show because Beth is coming to us with two very distinct perspectives. On the one hand, you were at one of the world's largest companies for nearly 30 years. On the other hand... At that company, you were widely known as the change agent, the person from the inside who was driving innovation. Uh, you oversaw GE Lighting, you oversaw GE Ventures. So you have the mentality in some ways of a CEO and a kind of a disruptor. But on the other hand, you also have the institutional understanding of how do you get big companies to change? How do you get big companies to ideally, uh, to be very blunt, Higher gooder. That's what I. That's what I'm going for on this show. I wanna. I wanna figure out how do we get the world's largest companies to hire gooder. And not only in those existing units, like you said, Josh, but I think what's also really interesting is Beth. You initiated GE's digital and clean energy transformation programs too, right? So I mean, that's a right. lot of just instantiation of net new innovation too. Yeah. Um, well, if only it were so easy to, as you just could say, <laughs> "Hey, gooder's here. Buy it," and everybody goes, "Yeah." Right. I mean, we, but it makes, so it much makes sense. my life so much easier. <laughs> I know. And my guess is, Jasmine, that even some of your investors think it's that easy. I found uh, I, I think calling especially on business clients, uh, especially for companies that haven't had that background, it, even for companies that have, it's really hard. I did uh, in my work at GE uh, and in other places, I over, often oversaw uh, sales teams that had to sell a new product to a, to a new customer or a new product to existing customers. And my rule of thumb was always for big established companies, it took a minimum of 12 to 18 months to sell a new suite of software, a new product. And that was even existing customers that we already had. And, and that usually drives people crazy to think that it, um, it takes so long. I would have people come to me and say, well, how can I, how can I speed that up? I'm like, well, maybe you'll get lucky, but that's just been my experience. And what, what is, what is Jasmine working against? I mean, one, it is, even if people recognize the need, and I'm sure it sounds like, I mean, kudos to you, you got the Atlanta airport. What a huge contract and win. I think that's usually the first step is to get, you get your first customer and they become your demonstration customer. So other people say, hey, 
the airport's done it. Why can't we do it? That that often is your hardest to get that first big demonstration customer. You need to find a champion in that existing company. It takes time. The champion then has to go and work through different systems um, because there's no, there's not really a motivation for people to change how they're doing their business. They're getting incented on how they do things. So you're just working on change on so many different, uh, different dynamics. Frederick, you've started your own company. Josh, you have too. I mean, if Jasmine showed up at your door, wouldn't that be one of the questions you'd be asking her? Like, how can you do this? Yeah, and it's not just how can you um, how can you scale with us. I imagine that in this situation, with uh, I know you work with um, some of the big uh, convention centers in Georgia too. I mean, they must think, okay, so who am I going to call when something goes wrong? All right, so who else is there besides just Jasmine? All right, Jasmine, who's the rest of your team? Who's going to be there to coordinate the deliveries? What's going to happen with the pickup? Just all the parts of your uh, program, which are a physical supply chain, right? must be pretty complicated. Just convincing them that you can actually do it at scale. It's like, okay, that's a nice story. I read about you in Fast Company. You had the pop-up restaurants. How are you now going to service, as you said, one of the biggest uh, airports in the world? Yeah, the biggest. The biggest airport in the world uh, on a daily basis, I'm assuming, and get all the food out. I mean, how did you get through that? I mean, it was absolutely hard. It wasn't an easy thing. And it was, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And this is my idea. This is all that I have, but this is what I've built. And this is what it's going to take for me to scale it. And so how we first got in with the airport, it was through a pilot. So we did a pilot with them for three months. It was a paid pilot. And I was really clear to say, I can't do a free pilot. I have to have a paid pilot because I have to have the staff. I need an operations person. I need to, you know, my logistics people, their supplies. And we agreed upon a 90-day paid pilot. And Jasmine, I just want to call this out because we've heard this from other people on the show. Don't give away your stuff for free. This is something that Freddie has also well, called Josh out. Josh knows this is a pet peeve <laughs> of mine. Absolutely. So I love it that you're saying that because you have to show someone, hey, there's a lot of value in what I'm doing for you. Yeah. And if they're not willing to pay for it, they won't be willing to sign a $100,000, $200,000 contract with you. And I can tell you, um, having represented big companies in, in these discussions, um, and been a champion, overseeing a team of champions, um, it's easy to say, let's do it for free, or it's easy to say, we'll just keep doing pilots. And the more you ask people to put money to it, um, the challenge often is uh, with you and your investors to say, yeah, but I'm not making a profit on this. And then you have to go back and convince your investors that it's our right to do this at a much less margin because it's a way to get a proof point. So it's not even once you get the customer, you still have other stakeholders that you have to convince this is a good thing to do. And that's exactly what I had to do. I think at the time when I won the contract with the city of Atlanta, Atlanta Airport, we didn't have any investors. So that was a big win for me. And so having went through the pilot and actually had a contract that was for, I think at the time it was three years guaranteed. It was through 2021. We've recently um, extended that. But I was able to go to then investors once I had proved that paid pilot and we had them as a contract. That's how I was able to actually gain investment is having won that contract first.
there's also a lot of value um, I've found in these types of arrangements, and I'd love to get your perspective, Jasmine, on how this has worked out for you, not just financially, but also in things like customer marketing. So have you gotten the Atlanta airport to agree that they would, you could use their story and they would talk to some press for you and they would uh, maybe do a press release with you or put a quote in your press release, all these other things to help convince the next big airport or whatever it is that, yes, this is someone that you should do business with. Absolutely. I mean, it was a great and is a great partnership. Uh, with ATL. And it was, you know, they did a press release uh, about the winners of that ATL Thinks competition. We've had several uh, large-scale media stories happen right in the airport, uh, including NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. We also had um, Oprah's Network own did a Super Soul Sunday feature on Gooder, which we filmed in the airport. We were able to talk to a lot of the concessionaires that we service in the airport who actually produced the food and got their buy-in. And I mean, their feedback and their testimonials have gone a long way with helping us, you know, That's get great. into the doors of other airports. That's great. You know, Frederick, you're putting together, I think you're starting to lay out a really good uh, checklist or, you know, a punch list for a startup company dealing with a big company. One, you want to, you do want to get paid for your project, for your pilot. Two, as part of that payment, ask for promotion. If this works well, will you help me promote it? Because it's going to make both of us look good. Too often people are afraid to ask for that or customers don't want to do that. They want to keep you stealth. So I think to put that out right in the uh, three, we've talked about the need to have a champion. Um, A champion is somebody that you are, you know, that's going to be able to do the work for you. Um, so, I mean, I, it's interesting, I think, as through the course of this conversation, we're putting together a really good uh, checklist of what we need. And the thing I would add to that is your first customers are not always your best customers to do some of those things. And this is a bit of a tension I bet Jasmine had to go through. You're just so happy to have uh, someone paying for a pilot. Um, you want to sign up, but you need to make sure that they are willing to go the distance with you. At the same time, you're just trying to be lucky and fast and grab it. Um, So I'm sure, Jasmine, you went through some of that uh, as as you were thinking about the Atlanta airport. I went through so much, Beth. You're absolutely right. And the thing I went through the most that I think other entrepreneurs just have to be, you know, just very aware of is that that first big customer, that first marquee customer is everything. So there was a lot of stress and there was a lot of like, you know, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, making sure that it was perfect and that we wowed them. I, I wonder, Beth, how do you think about the, the role of storytelling and story when it comes to starting and, and even running a company? It, to me, story is everything. And Josh, you and I have a shared uh, love of story here. Uh, I always say, if you can't tell something, you can't sell something. And um, I saw this in big companies and small where where founders or or leaders get so stuck in the product feature or the gee whiz of the technology of all that goes into it um, that they lose sight of why do I why should I care about your story? What is a good story when we're talking about uh, launching a business? It one it starts with what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, what need is it that exists that I can help bring clarity to? So Jasmine's done that very clearly with her story. The last thing I'll say about story is it's aspirational. It doesn't have to be true yet. And this is where I think people get a little nervous 
because you're building a vision, you're building the future and you're saying, help me. So part of the, I'm sure part of the way she got the champion at the Atlanta airport was, hey, look at what we can do together. This is helping you. It's solving a problem for you, but we're going to build this story. I need your help. And most people, most good people want to help. And so I think being open and saying you, where you're going, but what you're not yet, that truthfulness. Um, and she said that. She said, I am only two people. I'm not going to try to convince you I'm 200. I am authentic even though she didn't have to use that word. So anyway, I, that's how I think about a story. And I think Jasmine's just a great example of a really great story brought to life. Uh, a watch out for startup founders when you're selling to business businesses, your business to businesses. Too often, I think people believe they only need to give the uh, those those facts, the the numbers. They go in with the productivity and think that's all that the business is going to care about. But business people are people and they have both the, the logical and the emotional needs. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you wrap those two together. Jasmine, Beth talks publicly about the idea of running in two lanes, one that's more innovation focused and the other that's maybe more immediate. And I understand that that's hard for a small company to do when you're all in on one thing. So my question is, are you already thinking that way? Like, are you already thinking five years down the line? Or are you just focused on the now? Oh, absolutely. I'm definitely thinking five years down the line already. You know, with everything we've been doing in response to uh, COVID, we are seeing like other new lines of business and other things that Gooder could be thinking about. So I'm constantly thinking about evolving, um, you know, pivoting where I need to and figuring out how can I be the best in class business. So that never leaves my mind. I'm, I think, you know, as a solo founder, I carry a lot of the weight on like where this company goes uh, on my shoulders on a daily basis. And so I, I want to be the best. What has COVID been revealing to you? Well, one, it's revealed to me that there are more people that are hungry in this country now than ever before. And that this is a, a big issue and that people are are in need of food in, in, in a major way. And so Gooder is really focused on fulfilling that need and, and, and serving it. Um, the other thing that it has showed me is that we have legs. We can get to other locations and we could do it fast. I mean, we were able to uh, activate in Los Angeles, California with the Lakers and UCLA Health. We're going to New Orleans this weekend with the Saints and the Pelicans. You know, we, we could turn this on. We've created what I would call the playbook. And now we have the ability to go and launch in another market in a matter of weeks. And so that's been exciting. I also, we've gotten a few government contracts over the last two months that I would say would probably have taken us years to, to get in. But that has shown me that there's more opportunity within the government space uh, to get food to people. So this is something that I, I want to ask all of you at a time of rapid growth, which all of you have experienced rapid innovation, uh, huge demand for what you've created. There, there's a risk of just getting, you know, frankly, burnt out and running yourself ragged. So I wonder, Jasmine, how do you take care of yourself as you're just working massive numbers of hours every day? Uh, you know, I... Or do you not? You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're I could do better. <laughs> I could do better. I could definitely do better. I think, you know, right now I'm working harder than I ever have uh, because of what's taking place with that COVID response. 
With that being said, I have built a culture within the company where, you know, we have things like Feel Gooder Friday, where we'll do yoga classes or meditations or walk. We have a wind down Wednesday, every Wednesday night. And so we really, I'm trying to build this culture within the company. Was that wine down? Wine down Wednesday with wine to drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like we, we've, we've created some of these things. And then, you know, when I do have the chance, and I'm pretty sure I won't be for a while now, but I'm an avid traveler. So I love to travel. A lot of my travel in the past has been paired with speaking engagements, but now it's just traveling whenever I can. Um, and really, I, I journal, you know, I work out when I can. Gooder's office is off of the Beltline in Atlanta, which is like a really long outdoor trail. Uh, so I'll go out there and ride my bike. We have bikes in the office. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of things like that, but I can always do better. Beth, you talk about journaling as an important tool. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah, well, I am. Um, I'm a big believer. Um, I as I put my book together, and now it's just become part of my practice. Of I do morning papers where I just write uh, when I in the morning. I just find time, uh, ideally more than 15 minutes, but a minimum 15 minutes, just to kind of download what's what's on my mind. Um, and uh, frankly, I wish I had done more of that when I was in more of the corporate grind. Um, I think I always thought there was one more email that I had to, you know, find a way to get out. So what are the kinds of things, Beth, I'm very curious because I love that. And I wish that I could, maybe I'll have to like get rid of one more email to do that. What are some of the things that you're writing down in those journals in the morning that, that in particular, for those of us who are still in the corporate grind, um, we might be able to take advantage of now. Well, I think um, I think just give yourself space to just write what's frustrating you, what's exciting you. Um, just get stuff out. I sometimes write down. Um, you know, I'll have uh, I'll have conversations. I will role play conversations that I'm going to have or afraid to have. Um, so I just use it as kind of a, a safe space. Um, one of the things I, I, I used to love to do, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm a worrier. I'm, I, and I'd, I'd often leave a conversation, um, with colleagues thinking, Oh, I should have said this. I wish I had said that, you know, kind of coulda, shoulda, woulda. Um, and I find that's a good form to sit down and write what I should have said, ah, what I could have said, at least I'm getting, getting it out. And then I kind of move on. So for some of those kind of things, um, you know, I, I used to do this a lot with emails even where I, you know, I didn't send the angry email. Um, I think it's much better to do that in your notebook than to accidentally have it in your email queue, potentially ready to, to go. So, so those kinds of things, um, are, are therapeutic. I find, uh, ideas, um, all of you are, are, are startup, uh, thinkers, entrepreneurs, founders, but I love just keeping ideas, right? I do that right now. I've got pages of ideas of everything from art projects to things I want to write to potential business ideas. So I think at the very least, you should have an, have something that you're, you're just putting down some ideas. So just create it to be whatever you want it to be. Well, on that note, we're going to sign off. I want to say a big thank you to Beth Comstock for joining us and to Jasmine Crow. Uh, just absolutely inspiring and exciting. I love it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all. Jasmine, good luck to you. It's thank really you, uh, what, what the world needs is, is you. So thank you. Thank you, guys.
Freddie, that was just a really amazing, amazing episode of this podcast. Uh, I learned a lot of things. I took a lot of notes. Uh, yeah. I think I saw you taking notes the whole time. I did. <laughs> I thought uh, Beth and Jasmine were both uh, phenomenal. Some great insights, um, obviously some great expertise, and uh, the business that, that Jasmine has put together is absolutely remarkable. So what were your what were your takeaways? Yeah, I had a couple uh, takeaways. The first one is about getting commitments from customers, and in particular on customer marketing. We talked about this briefly uh, in the episode, but there are three things that I always recommend entrepreneurs get from their early customers uh, in exchange for kind of that partnership. The first one is ensuring that you can put that customer logo on a website. That is huge. The customer logo and a quote from whoever it is, the decision maker there. The second one is, can you get a case study? Can you get a multi-page PDF glossy with a bunch of comments on the problems they were tr uh, trying to solve, the opportunity, and then how you help them do that. And then finally, reference calls. Get them to agree that once you make them successful, they will take three reference calls with either prospective customers or the media, just so you can amplify that customer marketing message. Well, it ties into one of my takeaways, which is if you can't tell it, you can't sell it. So, you know, look, if you don't have that ability to weave the magic around the idea, uh, then you have a major problem. So you really got to work on that, which ties in again to my next takeaway, which is the idea of journaling. Uh, you don't hear a lot of entrepreneurs talk about journaling, but as you develop your story, as you also, as a, as a CEO, as a founder, it can be very lonely. Uh, it's nice to have a place to be able to vent and let it out uh, without sending, as Beth said, angry emails. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Thanks again for joining us today. I uh, really enjoyed today's episode. Uh, this is Frederick Karest uh, saying thank you very much and look forward to speaking with you all soon. And this is Joshua Davis signing off. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. And this is the end of season two. We look forward, perhaps, to season three, depending on your feedback. This is our challenge to you. Write us. Let us know what you're interested in. Let us know what you want to talk about. Let us know what problems you're facing. And we'll look forward to the conversation. Thank you.